Welcome back to Innocence Advocate Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode eight, The Interrogations. In the last episode, I discussed the details surrounding the man who confessed to the crime and how that taped confession was hidden by detectives for three years. You also heard about the former lead detective perjuring himself on the stand. In this episode, I'm going to cover what happened during Stephen's six hours at police headquarters for his interrogations. Sometimes Stephen was crass and snarky. When he was annoyed with his brothers or his parents, he might snip at them with a sharp tongue, but he never spoke this way to me or my siblings. Although I'm sure we annoyed him to no end as children, he never spoke in frustration or anger towards us. He was certainly stubborn, even when he didn't have the correct information. Sometimes it made us laugh because he would say ridiculous things like, my mother had a C-section to deliver my brother, even though we knew for a fact that that was untrue. I began to pick up on this behavior more as I got older, and when I was around eight or nine, I realized that Uncle Stephen was also Kyle Sterling. As I got older, I began to notice that mail would come for Stephen addressed to Kyle Sterling. One of the activities we would sometimes participate in with Stephen was calling sweepstakes numbers. When we would call these numbers, he would say his name was Kyle Sterling. I do not remember the exact conversation, but I did ask him about this or make comment about it. I was probably around nine or 10 and I can't remember exactly what he said, but I do remember he blew me off with like a short laugh. I figured he was just being Uncle Steven. My brother remembers him simply behaving as though that was his name. He preferred to be Kyle Sterling, but he did not act like two different people depending on the name. He was always the same person. The name was just a name to us. We didn't try to unearth meaning or decipher codes. No reason existed to force an issue that was inconsequential. However, the investigators saw this name as an opportunity and turned it into an issue when they tried to forge a link between the name and the victim. The detectives would say that Stephen adopted the name because he wanted to use the same initials as Kristen Scarabelli. But Stephen was Kyle Sterling long before 1996 and most likely before Kristen's birth. And this was just an opinion of the detectives where the name came from. They never had any proof and they never figured out where the name came from aside from what my family believed could be the origin. When my grandparents and my Uncle John took the stand, all three of them testified that Stephen had been calling himself Kyle Sterling since the late 70s. He never requested that anyone call him that, and he never became angry if that name was not used. When my Uncle John testified, he said that he believed Stephen put that name together using two of his favorite race car drivers, which would have been Kyle Petty and Sterling Marlin. My Uncle John wasn't stating this as fact. He was just saying, like, this is where I think he came up with the name. This is my assumption. But the prosecutor called my Uncle John a liar. Even in his closing statements, he said he was lying because Kyle Petty, he did not win the Winston Cup race until 1986 and Sterling Marlin was NASCAR Rookie of the Year in 1983. He said that my uncle was not only lying, but he was being illogical, which I find interesting because the prosecutor is the one who has an illogical interpretation because all he's focusing on is fame. He's saying it's impossible for Stephen to have liked them because they were not yet famous but you don't have to be famous to be liked. And anyone who does a quick Google search would see that Kyle Petty made his Major League Stock Car debut in 1979, and Sterling Marlin made his NASCAR debut in 1976, both of which occurred in the late 70s, which is the exact time frame testimony stated that Stephen began using this name. But even if Stephen had begun using that name in the early 80s as opposed to the late 70s, absurdity is still portrayed in thinking that he would have changed his name to match the initials of a baby he had never met. 
When it came to the name, the detectives were grasping at straws. Wherever it came from, a connection to Kristen was not a factor. With such little evidence in this case and nothing connecting Stephen to Kristen, it makes sense why the detectives who already believed him to be guilty would try anything to create a link between the two. During Stephen's interrogation, he would be asked about the name similarities, to which he allegedly stated that the initials were just a coincidence. Kyle Sterling came up in the initial investigation and he also became the focus of the interrogations. The alleged statements that the detectives insinuated Stephen made while using that name became a large part of the prosecution's case. In fact, in my family, we think that these alleged statements were the most damaging to Stephen during the trial. But guess what? Not one second of Stephen's six hours at police headquarters were recorded. We simply have to take the detective's word for it. We have no proof beyond what these individuals say happened, even though we already know they desperately wanted him to be guilty. They used his mental illness against him. One lied on the stand. Some admitted to serious misconduct, but we are supposed to believe them. But as you are about to hear, even the detectives themselves did not have the same recollections for what took place in interrogation room one. After Stephen's violent arrest and 40-minute drive to Yapank, he arrived at police headquarters around 12.50 a.m., where he was taken to an interview room. At this time, Detective Mercer spoke to Detective Daly, who advised him that he had read Stephen is rights in the van and that Stephen was calling himself Kyle Sterling. Detective Mercer testified that he had heard that name before. At approximately 1.10 a.m., both Detective Mercer and Sergeant Doyle entered the interrogation room to speak to Stephen. Their first step was to note all of the injuries on Stephen in the prisoner activity log. Detective Mercer testified that Stephen's legs were shackled, Stephen complained of pain in his right side ribs, pain in his left eye, and in his ankles and wrists. When the prosecutor asked Detective Mercer what he saw when the, he entered the room, he stated that he saw swelling about both of Stephen's wrists, swelling around his ankles, that he had bruising on his left eye, a small bruise on his right eye, he had bruising on his forehead, bruising on his arms, and his back. When Detective Mercer was asked how Stephen sustained his injuries, he continued to state, I have no idea. And Sergeant Doyle, when he was asked, would state, I don't know. There was never anyone who could tell the jury how Stephen became bruised and swollen all over his upper body. Stephen later reported to hospital staff that he had been hit in the head with a phone book, which the staff noted in his injury log. Additionally, the information my grandparents reported in their letter detailing their conversation with Stephen after his arrest stated that his head was covered and stomped on while he was in the van. Could this also be how he received the traumatic brain injury doctors discovered after his arrest? During the interrogation, Detective Mercer stated that the handcuffs and leg shackles remained on Stephen for the five and a half hours he was there. Before Sergeant Doyle began his questioning, Detective Mercer testified that he read Stephen his constitutional rights and then read him the waivers on the card. Those waivers essentially ask if the person being questioned understands the rights that were read and determines if they want a lawyer present. At 1.20 a.m., Stephen signed the rights card. However, his lawyer clarified for the jury that the rights card has three questions that are supposed to be asked, but the answers Stephen gave were not recorded on the card. They were instead written in Detective Mercer's notebooks. So Stephen signed a blank card with no responses next to the three waiver questions. Suffolk County, New York has a long-standing history of allegations and actual findings of corruption. I spoke about this in episode four when I detailed Stephen's arrest, but it needs to be reiterated here. News articles as far back as 1979 write about the misconduct that was taking place specifically during interrogations. In fact, Suffolk County was previously under investigation for misconduct relating to coerced confessions. 
The investigation was conducted by the State Investigation Committee, who found several instances of misconduct by detectives and those in the district attorney's office. Suffolk County had a 99% confession rate, but after investigations, it was determined that some of those were coerced confessions. In 2019, former District Attorney Thomas Spoda was convicted of obstruction, witness tampering, and conspiracy. Thomas Spoda was the District Attorney during the course of Stevens' arrest and two trials, and he is the DA who denied my father's complaints to the New York State Grievance Committee. In 2010, New York law began mandating that interrogations for felony charges be videotaped. People within the Innocence Networks had lobbied for this change for years. The law was finally enacted because officials believed this would protect police officers from allegations of misconduct and deceit, it would protect the innocent, help convict the guilty, and serve as better evidence for trials. Thanks to work being done by organizations like the Innocence Project to help initiate these laws, interrogations are now less secretive in Suffolk County. Unfortunately for Stephen and for the jury, this law was nowhere near being passed at the time of his interrogation. So no video or audio evidence was ever produced to prove that the following alleged conversations in the interrogation room actually took place in the manner in which the detectives would testify. In the early morning hours of October 10th, 2001, Stephen would undergo three sessions of interrogations lasting five and a half hours. Sergeant Doyle completed all of the questioning himself with other detectives taking notes of only Stephen's responses in sum and substance, so in summary. Sergeant Doyle's questions were not recorded in the notes. With no video or audio proof, the following information is all we have. Session 1. The first interrogation session took place between 1.10 a.m. and 2.55 a.m. with Detective Mercer and Sergeant Doyle. The content of the first interrogation focused mainly on preliminary questions about Stephen and also illuminated his mental illness through the use of the name Kyle Sterling. Detective Mercer testified during his direct examination that in the course of their conversation with Stephen, he stated that his name was Kyle Sterling, that Sterling was his mother's maiden name, and that he had two brothers, and that Stephen was one of his brothers. Stephen allegedly stated that the last time he saw Kristen Scarabelli was when she was eight or nine years old when she threw a ball over the fence. At this point, the detective said that they talked about cars, that Stephen told them he owned a Ferrari, that he had it hidden, that he paid $70,000 for it, and he'd gone as fast as 170 miles miles an hour, that he bought it in Europe. He allegedly told the detectives that he had a lot of money, that he went to the Hamptons in his free time. They then talked about college, that Stephen went to Stony Brook, and he said that he had a lot of females there. He told the detectives that he didn't know Victor Scarabelli, that his parents knew them, and he stated that he didn't know Kristen, that he only knew her as a little girl, and the last time he saw her, she was about three years old. The detectives said they questioned him and told him that he had just finished telling them the last time he saw her, she was eight or nine, and he allegedly said, I didn't say that, you said that. When the prosecutor asked Detective Mercer, did the defendant tell you things that were strange or you knew to be untrue? He responded, absolutely. The detectives were made aware of Stephen's odd behavior from the first day of investigations in 1996. They continued to observe him for five years. And during that time, even more evidence was presented to them to indicate his reclusive and unorthodox way of life which resulted in the appalling manner in which they arrested Stephen. Now, in his interrogation, they were witnessing firsthand a mentally unstable man answering their questions. It took them 15 minutes on a phone call with Anton Shalinsky to rule him out as a nut, but they didn't care about Stephen's mental state. They continued their interrogations for another three and a half hours, disregarding his apparent condition. When Stephen's lawyer questioned the detectives regarding the answers that Stephen allegedly gave them, they all agreed in testimony that he told them crazy things, 
things they did not believe. So Stephen's lawyer asks, so is it fair to say that he told you things that were just so crazy you knew you couldn't rely upon the information he was giving you? And Detective Mercer answered, I think he, he was telling us things, what he wanted to tell us. I believe he was manipulating the conversation. When pushed about the way in which the detectives filtered out what they thought was true and what was not, both Detective Mercer and Sergeant Doyle switched the narrative. Stephen was being manipulative. He was not a mentally ill man presenting random information because that is how his brain worked. He was manipulative. But when it came to information they perceived was possible to use against him, he was no longer being manipulative. He was telling the truth. Their answers were riddled with hypocrisy. But still, in session one, even though we don't have actual proof of the conversation, what the detectives have stated has nothing to do with the crime. Session two. Stephen was given a bathroom break at the end of his first interrogation, but he would be back in the room at 3.20 a.m. for another round of questioning by Detective Mercer and Sergeant Doyle, which lasted until 4.45 a.m. The focus of this round of questioning was specific to the crime. Detective Mercer testified that they went back into the room and confronted Stephen and told him that they knew he had killed Kristen Scarabelli, and he stated, I didn't kill anybody. The detectives asked him if he knew where Kristen had been killed, and he stated on her front lawn. The detective then said that they asked Stephen how he knew that, and he responded that Stephen had told him. They then talked about DNA, told Stephen that he had his DNA, and he allegedly said that DNA had been around forever. How could they have it now and not then? And they told him they had his DNA, and, and he said that was impossible. You have to have intercourse. And they told him that Kristen was raped, and Stephen told them she was not raped, that he had heard about it, that she was not raped. They told him about his sperm that they found in the garbage and that they knew it was his, and he stated that he didn't jerk off in his garbage. And he said, even if I did, what does that prove? There was no intercourse. And the detectives continued to tell him that his sperm matched the DNA that they had in the case. And he said, it's not my sperm. He said that he switched garbage with his neighbors. He was asked if he was friendly with his neighbors. He said he didn't even talk to his neighbors. During the second session, the detectives testified that Stephen allegedly began to refer to himself in the third person more frequently, which they attributed to him being asked detailed questions regarding the crime. Sergeant Doyle stated that when we started to ask him about the murder and about how the murder was committed, he started to use Stephen. So the prosecutor asked Sergeant Doyle to give a specific example. And he said, we asked, do you know where she was killed? And he said, on her front lawn. And so they asked, how do you know that? And he said, ask Stephen. Stephen told him. And then he went on to say it was similar when they talked about the DNA. They told him that they had his DNA evidence at the scene. And he told them there was no rape. When they asked, how do you know that? He said that Stephen had told him. They are using these examples to state that he's switching between Kyle and Stephen. But still, he hasn't said anything under either name that had anything to do with the crime that was different from what they already knew. And it doesn't matter if he's Kyle or Steven. He isn't giving them information that wasn't reported over and over in the news. He's saying what they already know, what everybody else already knew, what people had been hearing for over five years, that she was killed on her front lawn and that there was no rape. That was all public knowledge. The following is an example of an exchange of the alleged question and answer that the jury heard to indicate some of Stephen's other responses. This exchange is between the prosecutor and Sergeant Doyle. The prosecutor asked, and did you inquire of the defendant whether or not he had witnessed what happened to Kristen? Yes. And what did he tell you? He told us that he didn't even know Kristen. Did you ask him, why did Kristen have to die? He said, she's dead, so what? Then what happened? The sergeant continues. He again stated that he didn't know her and went on for some time. And I say, don't you care? You know, this girl died right on your lawn, right near your window. And he said, well, that was then and this is now. The prosecutor continues. When he told you that Stephen had told him these things, what did you say to him and what did he say to you? 
He told us that if Kristen only had not screamed and that Stephen only wanted to talk to her. Did you ask him how he knew that? He said that Stephen had told him. Did you inquire of him where Kristen's body had been found or where Kristen's body had been put? He said that he didn't know where she was, but then he said she was somewhere on the block. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, Stephen told him. Did you ever approach him or talk to him about why he was using the third person or why he was referring to himself as Kyle Sterling? The sergeant continued. I confronted him with it and said, Kyle, you're really Stephen. And then he said to me, don't call me that bogus name. Did you ask him what Stephen had done to make Kristen scream? The sergeant said he stated that he only wanted to talk to her. At this time, the second interview ended. As you can see, the prosecutor is asking Sergeant Doyle a lot about what he asked Stephen and how Stephen responded. We have no proof beyond what he is saying. And there are two things to take into account here. Sergeant Doyle did not take any of his own notes, so he is relying on what other detectives' notes say regarding the conversation. And Sergeant Doyle's questions were not written down by anyone. Only Stephen's supposed summarized answers were written down. So when the prosecutor says, what did you ask him or how did you ask him? And then Sergeant Doyle responds, I asked him, how does he know? Is he going off memory? If his questions are not recorded, how can either of them say, this is what I asked or this is how I asked it? We need proof. We need to know what was really stated before these alleged answers. And more specifically, we need to know how they were asked. Session three. The third and final round of Stephen's interrogation occurred between 5.10 a.m. and 6.20 a.m. At the beginning of this session, Stephen had been in custody for over five hours. Sergeant Doyle continued to ask the questions, but this time Detective Giordano took notes in sum and substance. At this point, Stephen had still not given a confession, so the questions in this round were geared toward pushing Stephen over the edge in order to give the detectives what they had wanted since 1996. Detective Giordano testified, that Sergeant Doyle told Stephen he wanted to talk to him some more about Kristen, and Stephen responded, I told you I didn't kill anybody. Then Sergeant Doyle showed Stephen a picture of Kristen Scarabelli dead, and according to a Detective Giordano, Stephen turned away and said, I'm not looking at that. The questions then began to focus again on the DNA that was retrieved from Stephen's garbage, and they talked about the DNA, pretty much the same questions that were already stated that Stephen said there couldn't be any DNA because there was no intercourse, and as Stephen allegedly told the detectives that he watched them take his garbage, he knew that they were watching him. And when the DNA came up, he responded like, I told you I have brothers, maybe one of them did it, and he's referring to the sperm on the napkin. Stephen was also questioned at this time regarding whether or not he had ever been on the Scarabelli property and he said he didn't even know who they were. The following alleged exchange between Sergeant Doyle and Stephen is told from Detective Giordano's testimony, and it sheds light on the type of questions that were being asked of Stephen during this third and final attempt at obtaining a confession. This part of the testimony is between Detective Giordano and the prosecutor. The detective said that the sergeant asked Stephen if Kristen was his fantasy, and Stephen said, you're a real dickhead. I told you I don't even know her. The prosecutor asks, did there come a point when the sergeant brought the subject back to rape or sexual intercourse? And she said, yes, in substance. So he continued, what did the sergeant say to the defendant at that time? And the detective said, he asked the defendant in sum and substance if he had trouble maintaining an erection. The prosecutor asks, is that exactly how he said it? And she said, no. He asked him something to the effect of, what's the matter? You couldn't get it up. Are you having trouble getting it up? To which Stephen responded, don't be stupid. The prosecutor continued, and what was said next in the course of the conversation? And the detective responded that the sergeant said to him, in sum and substance, like, well, did you want to make love to her? And what did he say? Stephen said, don't patronize me. What happened next? And then the sergeant said, well, did you either want to make love to her or did you want to fuck her? 
And what, if anything, did the defendant respond? He said, don't try to trick me into telling you what happened. What happened next? The detective said, the sergeant said, well, are you going to tell us now what happened? And the defendant said, fuck you, you fucking bastard. I'm not giving you a confession. What happened next? The defendant became agitated and said, get these cuffs off me now, schmuck. He said, this is a federal offense. You took me off my property. That's illegal. I'm going to have your job. And he carried on about his wrists hurting. So at this point in time, the sergeant asked Stephen if he wanted to go to the hospital. And Stephen said, yes, he wanted to get out of there. Stephen's request for hospitalization ended the interrogations altogether. Detective Daly, the detective who rode in the van for 40 minutes with Stephen, said that Stephen denied killing anybody in that van ride to headquarters. And in each of the three interrogations, Stephen would continue to state that he did not kill anybody. No confession was ever produced verbally, written, or in record of any manner, which the three interrogating detectives testified as true. In addition to no confession ever being recorded, Stephen was also never given a statement to sign in regards to anything he stated in the five and a half hours of interrogations. The detectives gave him nothing to sign so that he could corroborate or agree to the statements he supposedly made. The lack of video or audio recordings throughout Stephen's interrogation present many issues. The statements themselves cannot be verified. The context of the conversation cannot be proven, the environment cannot be experienced, the tone of voices cannot be witnessed, and the deceptive tactics cannot be experienced. Furthermore, the three detectives involved in the interrogations presented discrepancies within the information they presented to the jury. Here's what I mean by discrepancies. When Sergeant Doyle was first asked in trial if Stephen had denied killing anybody, he said no. He was told to refer to the notes he had. And when he did, he changed his answer. Not only was he not referring to his own notes because he didn't take any, he was also unable to read Detective Mercer's notes, so they had to be typed for him. And then he verified for the jury that Stephen had, in fact, denied killing anybody. Additionally, deceptive methods were clearly used during the interrogations, especially in the third session. However, not all of the detectives agreed to this method being used. This discrepancy was highlighted during the three detectives' cross-examinations by Stephen's lawyer. Detective Mercer testified that deception was used by himself and Sergeant Doyle. When Detective Giordano was questioned, she denied any such behavior existed. When asked if Sergeant Doyle used deception in asking questions of Stephen, she responded, not that I'm aware of. And then she went on to testify that the sergeant wouldn't use deception. Stephen's lawyer then expressed to her that Detective Mercer had already testified that deception was used in the questioning process. Additionally, in later testimony from Sergeant Doyle himself, he would state that he raised his voice, swore, and used deception several times during his interviews with Stephen. Sergeant Doyle testified that he used obscene words, that he lied to Stephen about certain things, and his intention in doing all of this was to keep Stephen on edge during his interrogations. The sergeant himself testified that he used deceptive measures, even though Detective Giordano had already testified and told the jury that he would never do that. How was the jury supposed to understand what happened in that room without video or audio proof? They were left to believe what the detectives told them happened without any evidence, even though before their very eyes they were experiencing faulty recollections. Our one-sided, summarized notes really the best way to preserve fact? Is that really the best way to bring proof to a jury in order to convict someone? If you remember from episode seven, even the judge said that it was a shame that Suffolk County did not record interrogations and that note-taking was not the best way to preserve fact. He said this on the record, but not in the presence of a jury. Again, making my initial point clear, if the jurors were privy to everything that was going on, to all the information taking place, they may have seen a different picture. 
Detective Giordano testified that she did not write down everything that was said in the interrogation room and that she did not have any notes with respect to what Sergeant Doyle asked. Why did the detectives choose not to tape the interrogation of such a high-profile case, a case that they had spent both years and taxpayer money trying to solve? Their answers, the reasons they testified to this, was because recording was not their protocol and they believed their methods were sufficient enough. However, their contradictory testimony would show otherwise. The detectives testified that the homicide squad in Yapank did have video equipment and tape recorders, but when asked why they did not turn any of that equipment on, Detective Mercer stated that that would have been done later on if he so desired and it never got to that point. Each detective stated that they could have turned the video or tape recorder on without Stephen even knowing, but they would never have done that because that was something they didn't do at the homicide squad. When Stephen's lawyer asked, so what the jury has with respect to this interrogation is what you've told them, as opposed to what they can see for themselves or hear for themselves, correct? Detective Mercer answered, that's correct. The detectives continued to elaborate on the process that the homicide squad used in regards to recording interrogations. They said that the process is that the defendant is talked to, orals are taken from the defendant. The defendant is asked if he would give them a written statement. If he says yes, then a written statement is taken from him with the rights attached. Then the defendant is asked, do you want to video talk to the district attorney? If he agrees to do that, that is done. If he doesn't agree to do that, a video refusal form is signed by the defendant stating that he doesn't want to go on video. That's the process. Sergeant Doyle was also asked questions pertaining to the lack of video or audio evidence in which he was specifically given this question. It's your testimony that it's better for you more than two years later to get up on the witness stand and look at somebody else's notes to tell us what my client may have said or may not have said, than to show a videotape to a jury. Is that your sworn testimony this afternoon, sir? Sergeant Doyle responded, I believe that our procedures follow proper are just as good as that, as you just mentioned. How was the jury to decide whose version was more correct? A recording would have presented concrete, unwavering, and undisputed recounts of the facts. When Anton Shalinsky took the stand, he answered, I don't know and I don't remember for almost every question. Even though he was unwilling to respond, the jury had the truth because his interviews were all recorded. There was no way for Anton or the detectives to back out of what was initially stated because there was proof. There was no such proof in Stephen's case. According to Detective Giordano and Sergeant Doyle, Stephen requested to be taken to the hospital at 6.20 a.m., stopping his interrogations and sending him to Brookhaven Memorial Hospital. The last comment made before the detectives left Stephen, according to Detective Giordano and Sergeant Doyle, was, perhaps it's psychiatric help you need. Stephen allegedly responded, I don't have any mental problems, you psycho, you do. In that moment, Sergeant Doyle verified everything. He understood he was dealing with a mentally ill man. He understood that Stephen did need help, but that was not what they offered him. What they offered him was so much worse. Sergeant Doyle didn't just make that statement as an offhanded comment. He actually meant it. He testified, I don't know so much if it was snide. I think it was appropriate at that point in the interview. As I was reading through the interrogation testimonies, with the lack of videotaping at the forefront, I kept going back to Dr. Kerwin's psychological evaluation in which she stated the following information. A reading of the police statement taken from the time of his arrest reads like a textbook of schizophrenic thinking complete with delusions and hallucinations further exacerbated by cerebral damage. Much of the time during the interrogation, Stephen was disoriented, not responsive to questions, self-contradictory and delusional. 
It is not uncommon for a schizophrenic individual to dissociate into a delusional alter ego when they are under stress. It is unfortunate that the police did not videotape these alleged statements because the facial expressions, body language, modulation and timbre of Stephen's voice and speech patterns would have most likely produced a record of organic and schizophrenic symptomology, which would have been clinically supportive of his diagnosis and shed light on his mental state at the time of the interrogation. Dr. Kerwin understood that not only were the alleged answers from Stephen in need of proof, but there was also a need of proof for the overall environment and situation Stephen was enduring, which would have made it clear how much he was suffering mentally. The detectives in this case testified that they wanted to talk to Stephen without counsel. They never recorded any aspect of his interrogation. They left the jury to trust the people who had already shown condemnation towards Stephen, who so clearly wanted him to be guilty, the same people who had withheld information from the defense. But that is essentially what this case, and ultimately Stephen's conviction, rested upon, a barely documented and unrecorded conversation in which no confession was made. Not only was Anton Shalinsky ruled out because of the detective's unwarranted mental diagnosis, but because they believed he did not possess information aside from what he may have read in the news. Stephen did not allegedly say anything in the interrogations that wasn't public knowledge. Stephen said that no rape occurred. Kristen was killed on her front lawn. She screamed, she was strangled, and her body was found in the neighborhood, but that he was not aware of the exact spot. That was all public knowledge. For over five years, Stephen would have been hearing that information in the news. Just because he allegedly said, Stephen told me, as opposed to, I read it in the newspaper, does not change the fact that the information was common knowledge. All that does is emphasize his inability to answer the questions coherently. After reading through the transcripts, I pulled out the three statements I felt like could be the most damaging to Stephen the way that the prosecutor and the detectives presented it. And those three statements were that Stephen just wanted to talk to her if only she hadn't screamed and she just stopped moving. But we have no idea of the context, the lies that preceded, the taunting that was taking place, or the manipulation used by the detectives to elicit those alleged responses. Maybe Stephen didn't even make any of those statements. Perhaps those are not even the full statements. These seem like sound bites. But what if the detective said to Stephen, she screamed, didn't she? And that's why you killed her, to keep her quiet. And Stephen replied, if only she hadn't screamed. But that does not mean he is confessing to making her scream. That's him agreeing with the detectives that someone wanted to stop her from screaming. When you add a question in front of it, it sounds more like Stephen saying, maybe she would still be alive if she hadn't screamed. Without video or audio evidence, it is impossible to prove that Stephen made those comments in the manner in which the detectives wanted it to be inferred, especially since we don't have a record of the questions being asked. We have no idea what was said to Stephen before those alleged statements. We don't know if those alleged statements are the full picture. We don't know the order in which those alleged statements occurred. All we have is this undocumented and mostly memory from the detectives on the stand. How could the detectives actually state in trial what the conversation was like when they are only using their memory from the questions being asked and Stephen's answers in summary? The detectives already said that they lied and used deception, plus we already know that Stephen's mentally ill. He's been violently pulled from his home and beaten. At this time, he's been awake for 24 hours. When you give some context to the sound bites, the picture begins to blur. That blur is doubt, and a conviction needs to be free from that doubt. 
I shared with you a snippet of the testimony between Detective Giordano and the prosecutor, and I'm going to use that same snippet again just to further emphasize some of these points. The, the fact that we don't have proof of what actually happened. When Detective Giordano answers all of the questions that are asked from the prosecutor, every answer starts with a phrase such as, in sum and substance, something to the effect of, in sum and substance, like. She has to say it like that because she doesn't she doesn't actually know how the questions are asked or what the exact wording was for the answers. So what she's saying is to the best of my recollection or how I remember it happening, it went like this. That is not good enough when somebody is in trial for murder, when someone is facing a life sentence, life in prison. You need to have more than how I remember it is like this. To the best of my recollection, it was something to this effect. Additionally, she's changing the way that the questions are being asked. For example, the first time she's asked what the sergeant was saying to the defendant, she said he was asked if he had trouble maintaining an erection. And then the prosecutor says, is that exactly how it was asked? And she said, no, it was, what's the matter? You couldn't get it up. Are you having trouble getting it up? Even here, she's saying in sum and substance, it was this way. When asked again, she goes, it's something to the effect of. Well, the first one is a very nice way of asking, are you having trouble maintaining an erection? The second time it's, what's the matter? You couldn't get it up. Are you having trouble getting it up? The second one's much more aggressive. So which one was it? Because the answer that you're going to receive is also dependent on how the questions are being asked. And we're being presented in this testimony with two different ways that the question's being asked. Again, she says it down below a few statements later. The question is, did you want to make love to her? But then the question might also be, well, did you want to make love to her or did you want to fuck her? Again, we've got one that's being presented as a little bit nicer, I suppose you could say, and one that's more aggressive. Which way was it? She can't even tell the jury. After Stephen's trip to the hospital and his eventual arraignment in court later that morning, the detectives tried one last time for proof. They took their search warrant to my grandparents and began looking for the Hathaway shirt and anything linked to Kristen in the home. They searched for three hours and had to walk away with no shirt and nothing that connected to Kristen. The trophies that the profiler said the detectives would find, the trophies that became the basis for that search warrant, did not exist. At the conclusion of the testimonies, Stephen's lawyer, Stephen, and the rest of my family believed that the jury would use their common sense to come to the same conclusion that we had and that the trial ultimately served to prove. Reasonable doubt clouded every piece of argument the prosecution presented. No evidence existed to point to Stephen clearly as the murderer. The prosecution had not presented any information that would suggest that Stephen, after 21 years, let go of his mental illnesses for just one night, touched and talked to Kristen, and killed her in the presence of neighbors. All they had actually proved was that Stephen lived next door to her and that he was mentally ill. Those two things do not make someone guilty of murder. Sure, they had inferences. They had crafted a picture that made him seem suspicious. But what if they had done that same thing to James Marr or Anton Shalinsky? What if we took sound bites of their statements and read them to the jury? Then we have more potential suspects. And sure, you can include Stephen in the list of potential suspects. You can say that he's suspicious. James is suspicious. Anton is suspicious. But that's the entire point. If there is a reasonable degree of doubt, if it's just as likely to have been Stephen as it is to be James or Anton or any of the people who made those calls that were never tracked down, or the person whose hair is on Kristen's shirt and in the morgue shroud, or the clump of hair on her yard, if it could also have been one of those unknown people, how can you pick just one? Based on just the information we have at this point, we have more than one contender. 
I often play this like a movie in my head, and it goes like this. The movie starts, and the crime is being committed by Steven, and then the camera reverses all the way to the beginning, and it's no longer Steven you see, but James, and now he's committing the crime. And then the camera reverses again and takes you all the way back to the beginning, and now it's no longer James you see, but it's Anton, and he's committing the crime. And the camera continues to do this to the faceless individuals who made the mysterious calls to Kristen. And then you see the detectives and they're standing around a desk and there are four pictures, Stephen, James, Anton, and a question mark to represent all the loose ends. And the detectives spin a bottle and it lands on Stephen, so they go with him. These flashes in my mind are because of doubt. And that can be doubt for all three. But that again is the point. You don't have to have 100% proof to convict someone. That's almost impossible but you can't have this much doubt. And that is what the first jury struggled with. And that is why they could not reach a verdict. There was too much doubt. Tune in next week to hear what was happening in the deliberation room that made it so Stephen's first trial was declared a mistrial by hung jury. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.